Hey, Jeff. Hey, Eric. How are you? I am pretty good. How are you? Doing well, thank you. I have a question. Sure. Do you remember what the first thing we watched on TV during the quarantine was? Yes. And I do remember that everybody seemed to be watching things that was were supposed to like get them out of the moment. You know, things that would brighten up their days because it's such a dark time. <laughs> yeah. We did not watch American Ninja Warrior. No, we didn't. We, <laughs> no. like This is even before like Tiger King. Yeah. And we were just like... You know what would what would really like fit the mood right now? Mm-hmm. Chernobyl right. on HBO, which is all about government dysfunction yeah. and a mysterious disease <laughs> and people dying. Disaster. Disaster. Yeah. You know? So we 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 pinched through that. Yeah. Just really entered that zone. I just want people to know who we are. <laughs> you know. I think I think we have watched some positive and uplifting things. Yeah, I already said Tiger King. <laughs> but uh, it's funny. This past week, I've I've found in watching this other program which i'll tell you the people about in a second a lot of the same themes darkness and uh disease and liars and dysfunction and uh just heaviness in a show that is not even from this or the last century it's it's really based it's called rugrats it's, it's, and it was on nickelodeon yeah. and no, this, let me tell you folks this is deadwood the hbo program from uh 2004 to some, yeah, something early in the 2000s yeah. and uh highly regarded known as one of the greatest shows on tv and it is great but man have you have you also felt this thing where it's like oh yeah the plague back then is a lot like the virus that we're going through right now and there's Idiots uh, called hoopleheads um, who uh, just want to start trouble. I want to bring back the word hooplehead. Is that what you're taking from this entire show? Well, first this of all, this very wordy and elegantly made show about a specific time and place mm-hmm. that is regarded as the greatest acting and the greatest direction and storytelling. And I come away from it thinking, hey, they say hooplehead, yeah. and that's <laughs> funny. That's funnier than saying idiot. Um, yeah, sure. I think that. It is a very dark show, but it's also so funny. It very very funny, dark, so, like, darkly funny. I don't know. <laughs> is it? Am is I, it wait, am I the hooplehead? <laughs> yeah, you're fucking. So uh, yeah, we've been we've been binging through that. We're currently in the middle of season two. Mm-hmm. Um, if anybody hears this podcast, don't don't spoil a show that's fifteen years old, guys. Huh? Do do us that favor, guys. <laughs> All, quarantine is hard enough. All the hoopleheads out there. Yeah, quarantine is hard enough without you spoiling a show from <laughs> 2004. Uh, I I, I want to shout out a couple people and a couple of places, if that's cool. Sure. Um, I want to shout out all the people who have gone to itsthereal.com slash shop. Wait, what if I stopped you? What if I was like, no, I don't want you to shout people out? Then I'm going to be honest. I'd have to, uh, you know. Abide by that? Yeah. Yeah, because it, like my thing is. See, you've already started. Quarantine <laughs> I want to I want to come out of this my my truest self, you know? And if my truest self is saying, "Hey Eric, don't let other people shine." Yeah. <laughs> anyway, keep going with whatever. I I I want to <laughs> shout out all the people who went to itsthereal.com/shop and have uh pre-ordered their new t-shirts. Mm-hmm. We have the Uchi Wally Zerbiak one, we have the Michelle Richomi Kwan one, and we have the Stone Cold Stunner one. Uh, all three are still available on itsthereal.com/shop right now, and for those who have pre-ordered, the first wave of t-shirts has gone out. The first wave. Now, people have been wondering, will there be a second wave? Yeah. The answer. The answer is it's, yes, it's going to be bigger <laughs> and more dangerous than the first. <laughs> so, uh be on the lookout for that. If you buy a t-shirt, 
uh, you get the tracking information. You will be able to look forward to that delivery showing up at your house. It's not that much of a journey. Like we we send it out with like two to three day shipping. Yeah, it's so pretty it's, great. It's you know it's called priority. Oh, excuse me. Don't you wish like Khaled would say things? You know, he says like I call it a vibe, or mm-hmm. I'll call I call it like danger. It's mm-hmm. like I wish he would refer to things by In, their given name. It's well, like I call it Oreo fire truck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, I call it Nobisco. <laughs> Two to three days. Yeah, by the way, everything that Khaled says is a cookie reference. <laughs> it's all him just reading cookie labels. I call them goldfish. <laughs> I call them nutter butters. <laughs> I think that's great. Um, so uh, one thing that I've looked forward to receiving are uh, gifts that have been sent to us mm-hmm. by Guitar Center. And uh, shout out to all of our friends over at Guitar Center who were like, We hey, have so many friends at Guitar Center. We appreciate what you guys have done with this platform and we want you to uh you know turn the volume up so to speak wow and so wow you sound like you've been reading like ad copy (laughs) they have sent us uh some really cool stuff to make all of this sound better be better and uh and 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 make our lives easier and so like if you guys can go and support guitar center yeah honestly if you guys want to get into podcasting they have all the equipment that's right for it, whether that's mixers, whether that's microphones, whether that's mic stands, and the list goes on and on, pop filters and audio interfaces. And, and depending on how much you want to invest in it, they have all different tiers. This is not a sponsored post, but we do appreciate them supporting this here. And we appreciate all of you guys out there supporting us by going to patreon.com slash it's the real to be a part of this community we we had a weekly zoom uh just yesterday yeah and it was great to see some faces that have shown up every week and some faces who we hadn't seen for a long time yeah shout out to Haley, shout out to annie shout out to uh, emily yeah shout, shout out, out to, to john fry the podcast guy who shows up and jeff goes john fry oh my god great to see you you colored your hair and he was like no <laughs> So shout out to everybody. But he did. I mean, I did notice that he had moved his drums. So I mean, like, it's not like everything is <laughs> is the same. No, it's not like I'm just like lying to people, being like, oh yeah, you you must have done something different with your hair, right? <laughs> You're taller now. <laughs> you've like, got you've, you've you've gotten that everywhere I go. People say, oh, You're you must tall. be taller. Yeah. And it's like, no, I haven't. Not I. I don't think I'm taller than like a month ago. But <laughs> hey, Jeff, we hadn't seen our best friend Greg Mayo in six months. Mm-hmm. Has he gotten taller? Uh, no, but he has. He did shave his head. <laughs> he did shave his head. Shout so out. he did lighten his hair. <laughs> Shout out to Greg, who is today's guest on the podcast. Greg, who's our best friend going back to elementary school, mm-hmm. uh, purchased day camp. You guys uh, may know him from uh, a lot of It's the Real Stuff, whether that's acting in sketches, whether that's uh, producing our music, whether that is doing voiceovers. Yeah, every step of our career, Greg has been there. Yeah. Um, Live shows. Yeah, Greg has been on stage with us. Greg has uh, proudly been a part of... uh, I think proudly. Yes. Well, Greg has been a part (laughs) of uh, It's the Real and everything that we've done and everything that we're doing moving forward. And uh, we felt like now is a time to really double down on the stories that we love and care about and greg has a fantastic story and we wanted to present him to you guys in his uh full image greg mayo uh producer movie uh buff yeah but movie uh what's 
obsessive uh scorer uh we're talking about two different things you're talking about what he does for work like he he does like movie scores and shit yes you want to about how he like he likes movies (laughs) he he quotes like the fugitive or dumb and dumber or you know uh tombstone or any other movie all the time yeah so you just want to paint him with that brush and say greg watches movies greg likes movies Uh, Greg should start a podcast called Greg Likes Movies <laughs> This is a really fun podcast It was great to uh, sit down with Greg From his apartment all the way to ours He recorded on his end We recorded on our end Oh, so it actually sounds good And it sounds really good Shout out to Greg Shout out to all you guys Jeff, anybody else? I just want to say I'm sweating so hard right now Are you? Is that because you're working out as we're as we're doing this? If anybody is wondering, while you're listening, I am lifting 75-pound weights behind my back. Yeah. My lats are looking crazy. <laughs> my traps. What other muscles we got? Jeff, when do you want to get into this? Right now. Yo, what up? It's Eric, a.k.a. Move and Work, a.k.a. Purchase Community House Pre-Camp. Yo, what up? It's Jeff, a.k.a. Top of the Charts, <laughs> a.k.a. Fred Pasqua. <laughs> Yo, what up? It's Greg, probably the third best a.k.a. today. AKA, I'm fine with that. <laughs> yes, your third favorite podcast to waste time and it's the real. <laughs> Greg, what's happening? What is up, fellas? It is an honor to be here. As our best friend and practically family, how does it feel to be the most requested guest on our podcast right after our mom and our brother Dan? Oh my God. Well, first, let me say, I'm really glad you kept me in the dark on that until just now. Because now I'm like super nervous. No, I'm just kidding. No, I feel great about it. It's like, it's an honor to be on this side of the microphone. It's an honor to like be, uh, you know, in front of the curtain. That's right. It's going to be really fun. I'm excited to talk to you guys. What I want to know first is how much or if any, research did you do leading up to this episode? Absolutely none. None. Besides the, you know, 30-something years that we've been friends. <laughs> That's what I figured. Okay. So, yeah, the, lo- the, bi- the most research you've ever done for a podcast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wait. Actually, while we're talking, now I'm going to start looking up stuff. <laughs> All right. Okay. Now you're going to stump me. There's, Here we go. <laughs> there's a lot of people who know who Greg Mayo is, but for those who don't, it is our pleasure to introduce you. For any It's the Real fans, Greg composed and sings on this podcast theme song Suns Out, Guns Out by us in Freeway. Greg's been our musical partner, producing all of our original music, our mixtape with DJ Drama, and our album Teddy Bear Fresh. If you go back to the sketches, Greg's the one who will call with a crazy idea, like turning a track by Jay-Z... Rock Boys. Rock Boys into a Klezmer song. You have been with us (laughs) from the very beginning, uh, a creative partner of ours. People may have seen you in sketches of ours. They may have heard you on the open mic episode of this podcast. Actually, wait, I just saw on your website that you are a producer (laughs) songwriter and multi-instrumentalist based in new york jeff is learning things tell me about that jeff that's uh everything you guys have said so far is accurate so keep going really you're on you're on a roll keep it and you're also uh five foot one (laughs) well you know i've been meaning to get that changed we're not gonna get everything everything right but uh greg you know how we start this podcast where are you originally from i am originally from a small place called west harrison new york up in Westchester County, just a stone's throw away from where my best friends, the Rosenthal brothers, grew up on the other side of town. Um, spent my first uh, 22, 24 years up in that general area. What was life like growing up in uh, in that hamlet of, of West Harrison, <laughs> that, that area, Purchase, New York, Harrison, New York, uh, all of that? Well, 
I'll say physically, I was sort of on the fringes of West Harrison. The way that Westchester is sort of, or the way that that part of Westchester is built is like Harrison, which is the bigger town that West Harrison is a part of. Uh, Purchase is also a part of that. Downtown Harrison, Silver Lake, all these names are sort of somewhat interchangeable. White Plains is sort of like a, a, um, a circle inside of Harrison, which is like a C shape around it. So I lived way at the north end of that sea, right at the top. And Harrison High School, where we all went to high school, was at the bottom of that sea. So what was strange was like, I would get on the bus like a good hour and 20 minutes before school would start. I was always the first one to get picked up. I was the last one to get dropped off. And then driving to school, I had the longest commute because I literally had to drive past like three other high schools in three other towns (laughs) just to get to Harrison High School, which was great, obviously, because Harrison schools, what up? They're super dope. Yeah. Uh, Purchase Elementary School, best elementary school. Uh, I don't (laughs) have any data to back that up, but it's super awesome. We all went there. It's the best. We all went to the same schools, but how far away do you think we actually grew up? If you asked me back when I was in like, you know, first grade, second grade, hanging out with you, I would say we were like two hours away from each other. Um, But of course, that's inaccurate. (laughs) I would probably say, actually, we were probably, what, like 15, 20 minutes down the road from each other, like if our parents were driving us. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Does that sound right? And I I think think faster if Greg was driving. Yeah. Greg didn't really like obey any Um, laws. Well, you had your older brother, Chris. And yes. you had your parents and you guys lived uh, in the same house that your mom still lives in today. And within, within that house, in the basement, existed a studio because your father was a musician. That's correct. Yeah, my parents bought the house back in 1978. My mom has given me all this history somewhat recently, actually. They, built, they bought the house in 1978. The whole first floor of the house, which is like in the front of the house, it's sort of a basement. In the back of the house, it lets out to the backyard. So it's like sort of on a hill. Um, the whole basement was unfinished. There was just like this one giant empty room, cement floors, somewhat not super high ceilings, but normal ceilings. And... Well, that was for most people. Obviously, that'd be a uh, a like we don't want this house because we have to do all the shit to it. My dad said, "Oh shit, this is perfect. I can build a studio down here." So the whole square footage of the house, almost, um, my dad built a studio into the bottom floor. So there was a big control room, and then off that was a giant live room, and then he had a storage room that eventually turned into an isolation booth. So. Back when I was growing up, there was a a fully living, breathing, working studio in my in my basement. And it should be noted that your father was on Frampton Comes Alive. He played with everyone from Foreigner to Hall and Oates to Aerosmith and the list really does go on and on. Uh yeah, the list the list is uh is quite long. It's uh, and it's like super incredible and prestigious and ridiculous. I like I, I see still posts. Actually just this morning I saw a post online from someone who posted a video of of 1981 Robert Plant tour where he introduces my dad as the musical director and keyboards and guitar on this tour where Phil Collins was playing drums. That's so awesome. So my yeah, my dad had quite the like I like like you said the long and prestigious career. Um of course the funny thing was like so this studio that my dad built in the basement he had always wanted to turn that into like his main job. He wanted to be a producer, he wanted to be a songwriter, he wanted to stay home more. After uh, after a while, obviously, um, but he just never got the opportunity to do that. So there would be long stretches of time when I was growing up as a as a preteen and a teenager when this whole sort of like playground in the basement of all these guitars and keyboards and basses and drum sets and stuff like that would just sort of like untouched and unused and gathering dust. So out of like sheer boredom 
after school and after camp and stuff like that, I would just go down there and start tinkering around. And uh, that sort of like spawned my, uh, my, my growing interest in music. When did you realize that your dad was like a successful musician? Um, you know, it, it was funny because, you know, when you're a little kid, nothing seems strange, even though like things might be very strange to the onlooker. But, you know, when I was like a little kid, you know, I'd be five years old and hanging out at MSG during a during a concert dad was playing. I would be going to Giant Stadium to see like his best friend play with Billy Joel and Elton John on their tour. So like none of that seemed strange to me. But I remember once I started to get interested in actually playing music, like really playing, playing music, I was like eight years old and I was starting to play drums. And I remember going to one of my dad's shows, hanging out all day at Jones Beach, at the amphitheater at Jones Beach. Um, and he was playing with Hall and & Oates at the time. And I remember like hanging out with the band during soundcheck and thinking like, oh, this is just a giant empty stadium, not stadium, but you know, amphitheater, probably 10,000 seats or however many there may be, thinking like, oh my God, in a couple of hours, this place is going to be filled with screaming, like ridiculous screaming fans. And part of the reason they are here and the part of the reason they are appreciating what's going on is because my dad is standing on stage and performing these, these tunes with these people. That was like a moment where I was like, oh my God, my dad is a big deal. I remember uh, your dad showed up to a career day in like, I don't know, third grade or fourth grade or something. Sure. And it was like, it was a big deal that he had shown up. That is really cool. That, I'm actually really happy to hear that. I, I actually honestly don't remember that. I do remember little moments though where like friends' parents, like for example, our friend Bob, his dad was a big rock and roll fan, still is. And I remember in high school, this is a little later, but I remember in high school, dad coming to pick me up at Bob's house. And Bob and I were just like playing guitars in the front lawn, just like hanging out. And dad came and picked me up and he like hung out for a little while and played a little bit. I remember Bob's dad like freaking out. I remember him like bringing his Frampton Comes Alive record outside and asking <laughs> dad to sign it and do the whole thing. And I was like, oh my God, Mr. Blake, chill man it's cool it's just my dad and he was like dude you know your dad's a your dad's a big deal and i was like oh yeah i get that's right i guess he is this your is dad's really bob mayo on the keyboards you know exactly 100 percent. so your father's a working touring musician your mother is also in the arts having started as a painter with that type of creativity in your house and in your blood what moment can you look back at and recognize i felt creative then that's that's a great question i think once i once I really started to 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 get a get a grasp of ear training within music, I didn't actually start like really writing anything for real until probably like later on in middle school, like actually starting to write chord progressions and trying to write melodies and things like that that go over them. But I remember starting to feel creative when I would turn on one of dad's like, you know, hundred keyboards or something like that and listen to a track that I really loved, whether it be like a Michael Jackson song or a Stevie Wonder song, a Marvin Gaye song, whatever, and actually being able to like pick out the notes that they were playing and play along. So that was like the first moment where I was like, oh my God, I'm like, the, the code is becoming real to me. I'm starting to be able to see what is happening within this music and I can start to like mimic it. And then also... I remember like the first songs that I started to write were, were based on mistakes that I would make while I was playing along to those songs. You know what I mean? It was like I would play 
you know, superstition. And then like my finger would slip into a weird chord and be like, oh my God, that chord is so cool. Maybe I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll make something off of that. So I would like write like a groove based on like my mistakes in another song that would turn into a, my own composition. So I would say probably around that time, like in middle school, when I would start to, like I said, when I started to just be able to like hear and pick apart what was happening in tunes that I loved. So know? what kind of audience would you present, you know, these compositions to? Is it your parents? Is it your brother? Is it your friends? Um, at is first, it no, it is, no. is, is, it, is it nobody? Yeah, it definitely wasn't his friends. It, <laughs> well, no, Jeff, it definitely wasn't you. I'll say that. <laughs> no, no, seriously. Uh, at first, it was truly nobody. It was like, these aren't anything. These are just like musings or these are just like random little sketches and stupid things that like aren't good enough for, for anybody or anything. I was, I was pretty shy about it actually at that time, which, which uh, I don't know if that's good or bad, but I remember playing something for my dad that I had written and he was one of these guys who like was was like I mean for better or for worse was like quietly really proud and like that super dad who but but only behind the scenes like I found out after he passed away that like he would tell all of his friends about how well I was doing but he like wouldn't necessarily talk to me about it all that much mm -hmm. but for example like I remember playing dad one of these songs that I was just telling you about where like I would mess up a chord to a Stevie Wonder song and then write my own song based on it and then of course I would play the tune while dad was in the room to kind of say like oh I hope he notices this really <laughs> cool thing that I'm making you know yeah, what I mean yeah and then and then of course he would kind of walk over to me and be like oh are, and of course he would he would pick it apart immediately and be like so were you trying to play that Stevie Wonder song I showed you the other day. I was like, damn it. No, this is an original song, Dad. Stop. So that was like the very beginning of it. But it wasn't really until high school when I formed uh, my like first like real band that like songs of mine started to like see the light of day in any like real significant way. And for all the primary heads out there, you're talking about that first band primary, yeah? Yeah, man. How many Spotify followers do you think we have right you now? You learn to play guitar, you learn to play keys, you learn to play drums pretty much on your own, maybe with a little help from, from your dad, but you weren't necessarily taking lessons from anyone, right? No, yeah, I took, um, I, I always say that I took six months of piano lessons when I was in kindergarten. Um, my mom um, sort of, I wouldn't say like forced me into it, but she was like, oh, you should check out, you know, you should, you know, get into music. Like, you know, most kids should, or all kids really should. But anyway, but I remember at the time I was just super into baseball. I just wanted to be a baseball player. So I like took these six months of piano lessons. I didn't practice at all. I didn't do any of the homework for it. I like just really had a generally bad time. And I told my mom, I was like, mom, and this was like really mature of me as like a kindergartner. I said, mom, you're wasting money. I just... <laughs> Like, I'm, I don't care about this. I just want to play baseball. And of course, like mom being the wonderful parent that she is, like understood that I wasn't ready for it yet. And she said, okay, sure, no problem. It's always there if you want it. There's a piano in the house. God knows there's like 50 of them. So you can come back to this whenever you want. So she let me quit. And that was that. And then it wasn't, like I said, until like a few years later that I started to pick it up on my own. And I think she was wise enough to like keep her distance as far as sort of nurturing it because she could tell that the fire was pretty bright regardless. So I just started to pick up stuff on my own. And then over time, every once in a while, I would have a question like I would be blocked. I would kind of have like a mental block about a song that I was trying to learn or a technique that I was trying to figure out. And that's when I would go to my dad as sort of like a lifeline. It wasn't like he ever sat me down and said, okay, we're going to teach you how to play the F scale today. It was very much, I would go to him and say, dad, I'm trying to learn what's going on. Can you show me the chords? 
And he would say, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, here they are. And he'd write them down and then show me. And then I would just kind of go off on my own world for another couple of weeks and just try to, like, plunk it out on the piano on my own. This is a time way before the Internet. This was uh, you as a as a young man living, you know, at home. Of course, you're going to get some musical influence from your parents. Of course, maybe you'll hear it through, like, MTV or something like that. But what did your older brother, who was just a couple years older than you, what music did he bring into your life? Wow. Well, <laughs> the funny thing is, uh, and we're going to jump ahead and jump behind a little bit, but my brother, when I was starting to like understand what I liked and disliked about music and what socially music was like, you know, with friends at school and friends who you would meet at, you know, camp and other places, my brother was really into hip hop at the time. And it was really interesting. This was around the time of like, I remember distinctly my brother like wearing out the Cypress Hill uh, Black Sunday CD. Yeah. For example. And Lords of the Underground and, you know, those guys. So yeah. like there was those couple of records that for some reason, oh, and Onyx, Back the Fuck Up was a big one for my brother <laughs> at the time. So of course now we're, we're carbon dating this whole conversation in a moment. But <laughs> So that's the kind of stuff my brother was into when I was like younger, obviously, and I was like starting to just understand a little bit about music. But I would find like just through osmosis, listening to those beats and those grooves, like sort of getting an idea of what at the time we thought hip hop was like what what was happening in hip hop. And I guess it was because those bands are super popular. Um, but if you fast forward a little while, my brother really got into guitar back yeah. when he was in high school and I was in middle school. My brother started playing along to Jimi Hendrix records and to um, Led Zeppelin records. Pink and Floyd. To Pink I, Floyd, of course. Yeah, yeah, he was big into Pink Floyd. Yeah. I also feel like you were really into LL Cool J's Pink Cookies in a Plastic Yes, bag. I was. That was a fucking jam, dude. Yeah. Four, 14 Shots to the Dome was a hell of a record, man. That was my jam. I loved that record. So yeah, so uh, a little bit later, like I said, my brother got into guitar and my brother and I had this sort of like, you know, like a lot of siblings do, had this sort of like love-hate relationship. It was always everything was a competition and everything was like an excuse to have an argument or a fight so when he started to get in the guitar and he picked up one of dad's many guitars he was two and a half years ahead of me as far as his age and his uh his um i guess mental acuity in a sense but like i said well shit if he can do it i can do it just as good if not better and i'm gonna pick it up too so that like really lit the fire for me as a musician as well to sort of like try to outplay my brother at every possible um, at every possible turn. So when you do start a band in high school, shout out to the Manhattan Project, are you somebody who can naturally um, work alongside others and create or were you more headstrong and you had a vision and that is what ended up, you know, on the, the sort of stage? That's a great question, and I, I I think you'd have to to get a real um, understanding of it. You'd have to ask the the other guys in the band, but I like to think that we were collaborative. I like to think that like we chose our song list as a group, and we kind of all did our homework as individual band members before we came together and and started to play. But being that, I mean. At that time, obviously, the man who has the PA system is king, and the man, the man who has the gear to rehearse with and all that sort of stuff is king. So the fact that we would rehearse at my house in a recording studio with like pretty much like real top-notch classic great gear, 
I, I guess you would, if you were to talk to our friend Bob or our friend Shin or our friend Angelo, who are all in the band, they would probably say that I was the, I was the sting of the band. <laughs> but, um, but I like to think, and I'll say this, I like to think it was much more democratic than maybe they would say. Sure. But, uh, but I mean, like, I, I think that like, even from like eighth grade on, I don't, I don't think there was ever a question that you would do anything other than music. Like it was always like, this is the goal. You know, I think, um, yeah. was there ever anything else that you wanted to do? Um, I, you know, it's funny. It took me, it took a while for it to dawn on. I, I guess it's funny that you say that. Cause like if eighth grade was sort of like the, the time when you and friends started to notice it, it was probably a little bit later until I started to think like, oh, there is a, there is a, a path forward here. There's a career here. There is a, um, a way to like be somewhat normal and go to college and stuff like that, but still nurture this and, and, and put all my eggs into this basket, you know? But I think up until probably 10th grade, I kind of had like the, I guess I'm like, I'm pretty smart. I do well in school. I, I like, I don't want to say I like arguing, but I like the idea of, of presenting a case, you know what I mean? Like in Mm -hmm. like debate and stuff like that. So I, I thought about like, Oh, maybe I could like, stand in front of a jury and convince them of something. You know, I could be a lawyer or something like that. Yeah, but, arguing like uh, uh, traffic tickets and stuff. Exactly. You know how good I am at that. <laughs> yeah. um, um, but uh, once I started to take it more seriously, as far as a, I come home from school and I just pour two or three hours into music before I even start my homework, for example, was like, a, okay, I should not... It wasn't even like I should try to push this away or I should try to stop ignoring it. It was like someday it just kind of dawned on me. It was like, oh, right, this is a thing. My dad does this for a living. I could do this for a living. What the hell? Why am I even trying to like ignore this? You know what I mean? Yeah, actually, like while we're talking about it, what were your impressions of Dan and myself in uh, middle school, high school? Um, I thought you guys were pretty awesome. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's a good answer. Um, yeah, I thought, I thought, Jeff, I thought you were leaps and bounds like more creative than anybody we were friends with i thought like your speed with just comedy and your speed with sketches and your your way of of sort of like seeing stories whether it be books that we're reading or movies we were watching or things like that you just had this like different look and quirky is like not the right term it's sort of like i wasn't like i wasn't a weirdo yeah (laughs) no 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 not at all of course yeah but i just i found you to be that way sort of like a a, um you were like i said leaps and bounds because the only way i can put it like leaps and bounds like ahead in that way sort of like more wise and more together and more quick than a lot of us or the rest of us and as far as dan i i think because from when we were even in elementary school we had this pact that i was going to be the baseball player and he was going to be my agent that (laughs) (laughs) that I just kind of had this, oh yeah, Dan's going to be the sports guy. That's just what's going to happen. Like whether he's going to play or he's going to work or in the front office of something, whatever that meant at the time. I didn't know if I knew what that meant, but like I knew Dan was going to do something within sports. Like it kind of is interesting how that actually somewhat came to be accurate, you know, all these years later. Greg, uh, we we grew up, um, you know, going to purchase day camp, we had a great elementary school. Obviously, like high school for all of us was generally a really good time. Uh, none of us really found trouble. We we all you know worked to get our money, and we would walk around the mall for fun. 
But how does that picturesque life show its cracks when your parents get divorced? Well, that's a good question. I think, I think, like I said earlier, like, and and it's become more and more um, apparent to me that, like, at the time, I, you know, you don't know anything other than what you experience, right? Of course, you have like little peerings into your friends' houses when you stay at their place for dinner, you know, after, after like a play date or after a hang, or, you know, you go to like a movie night at, you know, like we would do at Bob's place, things like that. But when I was, I was still young enough that I didn't know any different. I didn't know that what we had was like, quote unquote, abnormal or whatever the hell you would consider that. You know what I mean? Like the fact that my dad would tour from when I was a kid, from when I was pretty much born, my dad would spend between like eight and 10, sometimes 11 months on the road every year. And that's just how he, that's how he provided for us. That's how he made his money. And that's how he, that's how he survived. Um, So, and of course, when he came home, he would sleep for like four, four or five days straight. It was unbelievable. I couldn't, I like at the time, again, like I said, now looking back, I'm like, oh my God, how did somebody do that? But now, or at least at the time, I was just like, oh, that's just dad. That's what yeah. happens. And then when he'd, uh, sub- when he'd like awake from his hibernation, we'd play catch and he'd come to baseball games and he would do his thing. But like their relationship, as I look back, was was strained for a long time. You know, and mom, um, I give her all the credit in the world with how much uh, patience and how much grace and how much sort of wisdom she had um, for herself and for the family and for her kids and that whole thing. So it was... It was strange to um, to see Dad starting to sleep on the couch, and then to see him, you know, move down to Yonkers to his sister's house, and then eventually, years later, he moved to Nashville. But like I said, I didn't know what abnormal was. So my parents divorced when I was in, I think, fifth grade. Yeah. So, I, like, I just wasn't emotionally mature enough to to for it to like fully register. I know it hits different people at different times for different, you know, in different reasons. Sometimes you can be four years old and get hit really hard by that or two or 15 or 20 or whatever it is. I was 10. And for some reason, I guess because of my dad's life and my life up to that point was already a little quote unquote strange. This, it didn't quite hit me as hard as maybe it would have if we had like the the normal, you know, dad goes to work and then he comes home every day kind of thing, if that makes any yeah. sense. Yeah, a super important part of our growing up was the creativity that grew from the friendships and fun that we had at Purchase Day Camp, which we attended as kids and, and later worked at. Um, you guys were counselors. I supervised the movie making and pirate radio station classes. And we would pour ourselves into these projects, whether half hour scripted films that we wrote and directed and acted in and scored, or whether that was writing, producing, and recording original music in your mother's basement at night. Us and Dan and, and Brian Reddy and Gabe and Wex. We modeled our operation on Dipset and Caselay, and, and we were the purchase street sweepers. And we put our authentic experiences into the music, having our friends host, writing funny skits. We'd get heavy into sampling and interpolations, and, and we stretched our minds far beyond our small little day camp. What are your recollections of that time period and all of our efforts into the wee hours of the morning, not for any money, not for any press, not for any promotion, just because we all loved working together. You know, I, I, and I think you just put it really, really well. It's It was just us, like, in what would become and what still is our element. And it's, it's, it's funny, like, looking back on it now, 
Well, first, at the time, I remember thinking this is the most fun I think I've ever had in my life. Yeah. Like, honestly. Yeah. Like, 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, be ready, like, leaping up from the couch. Guys, I got it. I got yeah. a verse. I yeah. got a verse. Yeah. Here we go. Let's try it. <laughs> and I remember us just laughing our asses off, whether it be delirious exhaustion or actual funny jokes or, you know, somewhere in between. Yeah. I remember thinking, like, this is a blast, and I... There was like a small part of me as sort of like the, because I was I was making most of the beats and obviously with with everybody's help, um, but I remember thinking like I just and and it's funny now that I I look back on it that like this urge in me started very young. I just wanted to like turn on my friends, right? I just wanted to yeah. like make something that my friends thought was like really cool and smart and funny and and a good quality. And now, obviously, we zoom out a little bit, and that's, in a sense, whether it's whether it be good or bad or indifferent as a producer, as a music producer now or a songwriter or whatever you want to label me as, like, that's honestly still what I'm trying to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. The, the work felt special. Like, we weren't getting paid for this, and we certainly weren't getting paid much at camp, but we wanted to make each other laugh trying to raise the bar with every line, all of us there with our pens and pads. And, and you had a PC at the time with, with what, Fruity Loops? Uh, so we were making the beats on Fruity Loops and then or funneling, funneling them into Cubase. That's Cubase. exactly right. Uh, you'd, you'd pull out a guitar or a Music Man bass or some 80s keyboards from a giant case and, and we'd sample the Rolling Stones' Miss You or the Romantics yep. Talking in Your Sleep or, or pull some audio from Dumb and Dumber. We did posse cuts and, and remixes to our own songs. And, and this was summer after summer after summer. And then even over the winters, we'd record. And, and then one December, we'd, we'd put together a concert for 30 friends in your basement, our own version of jay-z's unplugged just like we were headlining sobs yeah i mean like i I just remember like if if that room could fit maybe like three people comfortably there were like seven of us like on top of one another just like always working writing you know sitting on the couch sleeping like all of that like together it was great that's right that's right it's it's like i think about it now and it was like our i mean this is super super um dramatizing it but like i think of it as like our own like mini mini motown or mini brill building or something it was yeah that was the that was the snake pit yeah exactly exactly and you know and even like we were also a and R's, and we were also label heads in a sense, right? It's like the this record has to be out by this date because if yep. we're going to burn CDs and give them to everybody, they have to have it done by this, and we got to tell everybody to pre-order and to give us their blank CDs <laughs> so that we can burn them and then give them back to them. It was like a whole thing. It was it amazing. Was awesome. It was a really Incredible. fun and creative time, and uh, and furthered our creative relationship. Do you ever think back? Because uh, I, I I think about this from time to time. Sammy Maldonado went to our high school, and he was New York State's biggest running back. He had all the touchdown records. He had all the yardage records. I think he had three state championships by the time he graduated, and he was highly, highly, highly recruited to Ohio State University, and he did not make it you know I think when we were all in high school it was like yo Sammy's bigger than everybody else Sammy's more talented than everybody else because yeah, he would just run through everybody and when he goes to the Big Ten he's going to you know win a championship out there and then go to the NFL and have this you know this straight path towards success and that's not what it was he was the biggest kid 
around us and he had all the records in New York State, but that doesn't mean that once you're around other people who are just as big as you and just as powerful that you're going to have the same sort of record. When you think about high school you, Greg, and you are the most talented musician that exists in and around our high school, were you nervous whatsoever to be around other people who were just as good as you, if not better, when you went off to college? That's a great question. Um, I was, I honestly, I mean, this squirt will we'll go to my to my brilliance, I guess. I was um, completely oblivious to it. <laughs> I I honestly didn't think at all about like. Oh my God! Yeah, I'm I'm the I'm the big fish, if you want to say it, in a small pond to a certain extent in Harrison, New York, and I'm gonna go off to college where everybody was the big fish in their own small pond, and then after I graduate college, I will be in the biggest pond and I will be the smallest fish. Like, I remember thinking when I entered college, and this is probably like, and I've always been a very competitive person, but I think my competition as I grow older is is much more self-competitive than it is outwardly, mm-hmm, right? It's like, mm-hmm. I just want to wake up today and do better than I did yesterday. I want to make a better song. I want to make a better beat. I want to, you know, play a better guitar solo. I want to just become better because I'm running my own race, not yeah. running a race against other people, right? Now, I remember and entering college thinking to myself like, wow, I, um, I'm pretty confident in my abilities. I am pretty set. I'm, I'm like, a, I'm very good at ear training. I'm very good at theory. I'm very good at like a handful of things. But I remember thinking, ba- or I, I look back on it now and thinking like, wow, my guitar chops and my keyboard chops and my production chops, as much time as we had been spending doing, you know, the beats and the other things up till that point, like I didn't know how to mic a drum set. I didn't know how to mic an acoustic guitar. I didn't know how to use an outboard compressor. I didn't know a thing about Pro Tools. Um, obviously, so many other programs didn't even exist yet. But I was going into school playing trombone. Like, I remember thinking to myself, even then, like, hedging my bets that, like, there just aren't that many trombone players in the world. And if I'm one of them who's pretty good, I'll be able to make a living. That's like, honestly, looking back, that's how I thought about it. And you went to school for what program? Uh, so the school that I went to was the Hart School of Music in Hartford my freshman year. And what they had was sort of like a dual major program for your first two years. You had to have a musical instrument as your focus and you had to have a chosen major, whether it be, you know, music ed or music theory or composition or whatever. So I went into the Hart School of Music studying jazz trombone and music production and technology is what it was called. So like my focus over the four years would be the music production technology stuff. And then after the two years, I could decide whether I wanted to continue with the trombone or not. And what kind of way did your brain expand once you got into music theory courses and meeting other high functioning musicians? Well, it was fascinating because it was very much like in a sense, it was exactly what I probably expected or should have expected was like, okay, now I'm in a bigger pond and I'm at the bottom. And there was myself and only one other trombone player in the freshman class. So, and, and I'll say, I'll be the first to admit that he was so much better than me, such a much better trombone player and just cared a lot more about the trombone than I did. So, but then then like also who cares? (laughs) Well, and honestly that like, and it's funny, I made all of these decisions by instinct 
at the time, I didn't really analyze them because I didn't really know how to analyze my own like thoughts or my own feelings or my own nudges sort yeah. of in a way. Yeah. But looking back, like this is precisely what it was. And it's exactly what you say, Jeff, where it's like, wow, this kid really cares about the trombone and he's so much better and he's spending so much time in the practice room on the trombone. And I remember thinking, oh, right, I'm here doing the exact same thing as him, but I don't care nearly as much. Like I, if I suck at the trombone, I don't really care. So I'm in the wrong major. You know what I mean? That was kind of like one of those moments where I just kind of said, well, yeah, why am I, why am I, you know, a hundred miles from home? Why am I have a fully, fully functioning studio in my house? And there's a hell of a, there's a damn good school that's, you know, right next to where I went to elementary school, which is only 10 minutes up the road from where I grew up. Which is Purchase College. Which is Purchase College. And I just kind of had this epiphany where I was like, I just don't really feel the need to be here. I don't need to be at the Hard School of Music. Could you have gone to, and I know you you ended up at, at SUNY Purchase, um, but like, could you have gone to, say, like an NYU and, or, or like any other like liberal arts, you know, or, or university or whatever that was not music focused, then you just did music on your own terms. Like, could you have done a straight up academic program? Uh, yeah, I definitely could have. I mean, my, my grades were pretty good and I had some good extracurriculars. I could have gotten into some of those schools, but I think at that time, I don't, I didn't really discern the difference between, um, like, I, I guess at the time, for some reason, whether it was because of mom or because of a guidance counselor, or because of somebody like the idea of going to school for something that in probably in no way was going to be my profession going forward. Yeah. Like I felt that that would be a waste of money and a waste of time. If I'm going to go music, I'm going to go whole, whole, wholeheartedly into music. Besides saving money, besides uh, being closer to home, what did being closer to New York City mean to you and your career? Well, yeah. I mean, I started to actually play paying gigs around that time in the New York area. What was your so, first one? My very first paying gig was in Larchmont, New York. What up, go. Larchmont? Yeah. There was a little place called the Cellar Bar. Right by the train station. Right across from the train station. God knows if it's still there. It might, I mean, geez, well, maybe we'll have to take a drive and find out. <laughs> yeah. But it was uh, with my buddy Matt Nagel, yep. who um, I met at Purchase Day Camp. What up, Purchase Day Camp? Yep. He, was, uh, he was a staff member there, and he started, he was learning how to play guitar. He was one of these guys who could like, talk his way into any situation, could work his way around any sort of um, roadblock in any way. He was just a, he uh, still is, like an incredible, wonderful, schmoozer, best friend kind of guy. He's just like, just a big bear who just can, like I said, can talk his way into anything. Yeah. So he was learning how to play guitar and he could sing. And I was a guitar player who could like sing a little bit and had a little PA system. Again, who, he who has PA is king. <laughs> um and he just said, "Yo, do you want to do you want to like play some shows? I know the guys who run this bar, you know." And I was, what was I like, eighteen at the time? And I was like, I, I thought to myself, "Yeah, you I, were I, way too young to be in the bar." I remember that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But of course, like I don't get in the bar. Matt didn't bother telling them. He only told them what they needed to hear. Was that like, "Oh, I'm 21, and my friend and I are going to play a gig, <laughs> and you're going to pay us a hundred bucks a piece." Right. And then of course he said, "Also, you're going to give us all that we want to drink because we're going to put people in the seats." Right. So, of course. That's precisely what happened. So over the next couple of years, I made $100 like once a month. And it was like, holy shit, I'm a professional musician. This is insane. <laughs> this is so awesome. So um, how that relates to Hartford, I would, I, I throughout my entire two semesters at the Hart School of Music, I spent one weekend on campus. 
Every other weekend, I was driving back to New York, back home, so that I could either play a gig or do a recording session, quote unquote, like of just like working on tunes at home or have a rehearsal or, you know, do do any number of things back in New York. So that was another one of those like, what the hell am I doing in Hartford? Hartford as a city sucks. Yeah. The school is fine, but it's not what I want to be doing. Like, this is just a waste of time and money, you know? What was the impression of people? Because like, I know why you were going home and, and I think that people probably on campus did not. What what did people think when you were just like never around? Honestly, I think that, I mean, I think it's a reason why I don't really keep in touch with anybody who I met there. I think they just like, I wasn't able to form like a strong, like close friendship bond with anybody who I went to school with there. I was sort of like the kid who um, is good and talented, but like doesn't really want to spend much time here, really. Yeah. You know, like there was like the the music fraternity. Those kids would like start to ask me like, hey, we're having a party this weekend. You should come. We think we, you'd be great for our frat. And I'd be like, I'm not a frat guy and I don't want to I don't want to hang out here on the weekend, really. You know, so I think I was I was truly through no fault except my own. I was the outsider. You know, if you listen back to your first album, which you put together, I think at heart and then maybe a little bit at home too right at suny purchase yes yes when when you look back was that more time the money that was all integrity set aside oh that was right the very yeah, yeah. first record okay yeah which by the way if nobody ever listens to that's totally <laughs> fine well when you when you look back at that album if you ever listen to it or you think about it what what's the we can we can all laugh at whatever but what's the what's the positive that you can take from young greg mayo putting together an actual project it gave me an appreciation of what actually goes into it, honestly. So what that what that album was, the birth of it was, I had a bunch of songs that I was writing. And at the time, and I, and I hope that most young songwriters are this way. I mean, that might be, I mean, it, it's really like derivative of other songs, similar to what I was talking about, where it's like, I when I first started playing piano, I'd make a mistake and write my own song based on the mistake I made. And then it became more broad where I'd say, oh, I I'm, I'm, I appreciate this artist. I kind of want to write in that style, in that world. So I would sort of like copy a vibe or copy a feel and then create a song out of that. So as I look back on it, I think this was a great collection of of work demos of just like of, of expanding my my uh, my my songwriting and producing and and performing side. So, but the most positive memory I have was it actually, like I said, on paper, it started as a project that three of the seniors at heart had to do. So when, if you make it to your senior year at the Hart School of Music, um, your senior project is to, to partner up with two other students or one other student and produce a full album with a local artist or a fellow student. So no matter what's the, whatever style you pick, whatever artist you pick to work with, you have to create a full album. So these couple of seniors said, oh, this kid Greg can play a bunch of instruments and he writes a bunch of songs. Greg, would you like to be our, our guinea pig, our, our artist? And I said, well, shit, like free studio time with these seniors who are like really good at what they do. Oh, my God, that'd be so dope. Yeah. So that's kind of how the project began. And so I will say like I, I at the time had a great relationship with those guys and it was it was just great to like again, like just start to like really hone the craft of like what it takes to not only write the songs, but to record and and put together what is a full album and how much effort and time that actually really takes. But yeah. to go one step further, my favorite memory, my favorite memory of making that record, the thing that I actually think of most um, is that there was one weekend where my dad actually was off tour and he was around. I said, dad, I want you to play on this record that I'm working on 
if you wouldn't mind, come up to Hartford and hang. And he said, oh, of course. Yeah, I'm, I'm off this one weekend, whatever. I'll come up and we'll, we'll have a thing. So I picked him up at the airport in Hartford. He slept in my dorm room wow. <laughs> for a night. And he came to the studio and over like a eight hour period, he played on like four or five songs on this record. He played like a guitar solo on one. He played piano on another one. He did some background vocals on another one. And I just remember being like, and it was one of these like, I would talk to the other students about my dad, of course, before, you know, before they met him. So I remember when he walked into the studio that day, the seniors that I was working with, they were like, oh my God, it's a professional musician and he <laughs> just came off a tour. This is so cool. He's going to play on our record. This is so dope. So I just remember dad like sitting down and figuring out my song and then playing it and playing these really beautiful parts. That was, I was obviously like my, by far my favorite memory and his performance far exceeded the songs that he was playing on. <laughs> um, so if there is a good memory, it's definitely that. So I, that's and really. I, I think that's beautiful. And I do want to mention that More Time Than Money, which I think was your next album. Yes. What I really loved about that project, besides the music and, and ideas that were in it, sure. the name I remember came from, we were all watching Standing in the Shadows of Motown, the yes. seminal music documentary about the Funk Brothers, the core group of musicians who, who wrote and played the music that went on to change the world, which everybody should go see. It's an, an amazing film. And I believe that quote was said by James Jamerson, right? It actually came from, um, actually... I, in in the in the movie, one of the piano players says it, but got I don't it, know if he's it. quoting James or if he's quoting himself. Got it. But it was definitely one of those like Barry Gordy came up to the guys at the <laughs> jazz club one night. Barry says like, "You, you guys want to make some money during the day? Want to do some sessions?" And of course, that's when the guy says, "Well, I got more time than money, so yeah, <laughs> tell me where to play." Let's I go. I love it. I love it. When it comes to your dad's musical advice, um, I can think of one thing. Uh, that comes to mind, which is uh, him saying, if you can sing a solo, then it's a really good solo. Yes. What do you look back at and and really hold on to from a music perspective from your father's teachings? There's a couple of things. One that always stands out to me is I would call dad when I was still like really in the weeds of like learning chord shapes and learning um, scales and stuff on the guitar. I would call him and say, or I would, I actually, I'd be in the same room with him and say, like, Dad, am I doing this right? It, like, look at my hand. Is this is this the way that I'm supposed to be doing it? Where my thumb is and where my forefinger is and all this other stuff. I would ask him, like, specifics into the posture, into the fingering and stuff. And this is when I afterwards fully realized, like, Dad also, aside from piano, especially, on, but on guitar, he was just, he would learn by doing. I would, so I'd ask him, say, like, am I doing this right? This is hard. Am I, whatever. And he says, well, how does it feel? Is it painful? Does it hurt? And I was like, well, no, it's just hard. And he goes, well, then it's fine. Then it's great. <laughs> so the whole point was like, everybody has their own path to get to a place of, to wherever they're meant to get to. And if it feels good, then it is good. Was And it was like, it's funny, these little drops of wind, wisdom, he was talking specifically about like where my thumb was on the back of the neck of the guitar. But as a quote, it's something that I think about within everything that I do in music, not just in the way that I play, in the way that I like hold a drumstick, for example, but in the way that I like write a song or I'm listening back to a, a beat that I'm making or something like that. If it feels good, then it is good. Who gives a shit about whether it's technically correct? There's no you know? mistakes. It's just like, you know, you're either getting to the place where you want to or you're... or well, no, I guess you're always just getting to the place that you want to, you know? Like, like, yeah, and, and, and the other thing, of course, is like in that same breath, it's like just don't force anything. 
Yeah. You know, if if a song is going to lead you somewhere or if a beat's going to lead you somewhere or a relationship with someone is going to lead you somewhere, you can't force it somewhere else. It's going to go there and you just have to will it. You just have to let it happen in a sense, you know. So that that's something that I will always, always, always remember from from when I sit down at the desk to when I to when I get up at the end of the day, it's the same thing. It's like if it feels good, then it is good. So, Greg, you you come down, you you start uh, to attend classes at at SUNY Purchase. You're gigging around town, and you receive the news that your father, who had been on tour in Europe, had uh, passed away. Yes. Take us through that experience and how you reacted, how you. Uh, how it forced you to grow up in an instant because uh, I believe out of all of our friends uh, you were the first person to lose their father yeah um, take us back to those those first few days um, well so I had I had transferred to SUNY purchase for my sophomore year and I had just started um, or restarted my baseball career actually so I played baseball all through high school and you know up to that point and then in Hartford because the music program was was um a lot very time consuming and the baseball team at Hartford was fantastic i just figured okay i'm done um but then when i went back to purchase the the coach uh, got in touch with me and said hey you know why don't you join the team we could use a pitcher we could use a guy if you, if you still can play we'd love to have you play so anyway fast forward to um february of that year of of uh of my sophomore year and I'm just getting acclimated to purchase. I'm get I'm starting to make some close friendships with guys in the baseball team and guys in the music in the music department. My mom actually works an office job at Purchase College at the time. She's you know she's around quite a bit. Um, and my brother um, at the time was living in Nashville, where my dad had ended up living at or where he moved to years before. And one morning, I get you know six or seven phone calls while I'm in class from my brother. And I don't, my brother and I, like I said before, like had this sort of tough relationship um, where we, we didn't really talk to each other on the phone very much. Maybe once a week, we would just kind of say hi or, you know, talk about, you know, whatever that. Anyway, so he calls me five or six times while I'm in class. And I'm like, well, why is he calling me at 930 in the morning? He's not up at 930 in the morning. What the hell is going on? <laughs> so, of course, I call him back and he says to me, he says, well, um, dad uh, collapsed on this tour. I just got a phone call from the tour manager or from somebody on the, on the tour. Dad, uh, he collapsed, he had a heart attack and he passed away. He was in Switzerland. And I'm, I'm, I remember exactly where I was. I was like halfway between the music department and the, and the dance department in Purchase. And I'm standing like in the, in the quad or whatever you would call it. Um, and I just like, I, I stop, stand still, I'm frozen. I'm still listening to him on the phone, and he and he sits there and he explains to me over five minutes what had happened, and I say, "Well, uh, okay." I like I, I'm speechless. I don't. I just say, "Okay," and I say, "Well, oh, okay." I'm gonna go to mom's office. I'm gonna go tell her what happened, and we're gonna figure out what what the hell is going on. Like, what what is what is the deal here? Um, and I, of course, you know, randomly run into a couple other like people who I know at purchase like in between that phone call and mom's office. And of course, later they would say like, you were pale in the face. You were not you. It was like, you didn't, you clearly didn't want to speak to anybody. Yeah. So I got to mom's office and I told her what happened. And she of course started to cry and we, we kind of talked it out for a second and she called my aunt Christine, her oldest sister. And you know, this is all the, the minutia of what happened, but 
over the next couple days, um, I remember it's similar to like when my parents got divorced and this sort of like things are already, it's not, it's already not a normal relationship. Um, and we already don't have, we already have this sort of like my, my dad and I had this sort of like long lost friends relationship more than we had a father son relationship. We would email back and forth when he was on tour. We would talk every once in a while while he was away just cause like long distance phone calls and things like that were crazy. Yeah. Um, so it was very much, I remember thinking back and realizing like it was a very dull, um, slow gut punch over the next like few months more than anything else. Just because like, I guess subconsciously it was, oh, dad's just, he's just on tour. He'll be back, you know, eventually, you know, it wasn't like, oh, dad used to sit at the head of the table and now he's gone and he'll never be here again. It wasn't, it didn't, I didn't have that like sort of normal sitcom-y type of, oh, he's just gone. It was very much like a, like I said, like a much slower burn than that. Um, And I remember the day, um, the very day that he passed away, we had like a winter baseball practice. And I remember calling my coach or texting my coach. I forgot which one, but I remember calling him or telling him and just saying, "Hey, listen, um, my father just passed away. I think I'm gonna be. I think I'm not gonna be around." You know? Yeah. And he goes, "So yeah, of course. Take take all the time you need. I'm here for you if you want. You know the whole thing." And I remember calling him a couple hours later and saying, "Like, you know what, coach? If it's cool, I think because I was just pacing around the house. Mom was on the phone. She was talking to lawyers and talking to all these different people because." I can't tell you what a nightmare it is to get a American city's citizen's body back from overseas. Yeah. It's it's much harder than one would think. Yeah. So I remember I was trying to figure out how that was going to work because there's a lot of money that's involved. And if they die unexpectedly, what kind of autopsies have to be done before the body can be moved? Because God knows if there was like a virus that they had or who knows. Anyway. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so I remember just pacing around the house and hearing my mom talking on the phone about all this, all these like details, all this like administrative bullshit that I like didn't care about at all. I remember saying, okay, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to go. I'm, I just need to go and do something. I'm going to go to baseball practice. So I remember getting in the car and going to baseball practice as if, essentially as if nothing happened. I remember walking in and coach saying, listen, Greg, you know, you don't have to be here. If you want to be somewhere else, if you want to take some time, go ahead and do it. Um... But you definitely, you know, if there's someone else, you, somewhere else you need to be. And I was like, actually, you know what? I think I just need to clear my head for a while. Let me just play. You know, let me just like do a workout or something like that. So worked out with the team, did that, and then went home that night and said, okay, coach, I really actually have stuff to do now. I have like jobs to 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 deal with this stuff because my brother and I are the next of kin because my parents were divorced. So we had a lot of signing to do and a lot of phone calls to make and administrative papers to deal with. So... I remember saying, coach, like, if you wouldn't mind telling the team what the deal is to so that they know that I'm not just like skipping out on practice and that like, you know, if they, you know, for whatever reason. So I remember that's how that ended up happening. And then in the following months, it was very much a, like I said, like a slow, a slow realization that like the, the biggest, uh, uh, the hardest part about it was that things were things were just getting really interesting between us, you know? Yeah. Uh, I was starting to get into the, 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 the real rungs of the music industry. I was starting to understand more about music and we were able to have more um, mature conversations about the ins and outs of music and the appreciation of music and the performance of music. And of course, way, way more importantly for, for where we are now, the business of music and the relationships therein. So, 
when he passed away, uh, it was only after he died that I realized, oh my God, that he was my, I don't want to say one and only lifeline, but he was truly my lifeline when it came to all things music. And I forgot, and I guess I hadn't realized up until that point, like how much we were talking from day to day, like whether it be a question about my music business class or about a song that I was working on or about a harmony that I was trying to figure out or whatever it was, like just that that lifeline is now gone and I'm sort of like just uh, suspended in air trying to figure out where what I can grab onto. Yeah, next. you know, I, I remember um, when, when we joined this club that no one wants to be a part of, when we lost our dad, you, yeah. uh, you were obviously very very great for us and and to us and and you had that perspective and you did say that you know the the guy who is that book who has all the answers yeah. is is now gone um greg your mom had a longtime boyfriend marty who passed away your aunt um would would pass away your brother um would pass away very early um and and he had been on a on a track that um, had led him there. Do you ever in that time period when you're just getting hit after hit after hit, think that you're unlucky or, or snake bit or, or, or it's unfair? Like how, how did you react to all of that loss? Well, with the exception of, of Marty, my mom's boyfriend, I guess it sort of like led me into my under my 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 being like just a realist in a sense. You know what I mean? I'm I'm perpetually an optimist, and you know it's funny that like people say like, "How did you? How are you still the way that you are amongst all of this in your history? How are you still the way that you are?" I think it's just because I was born an optimist. I was born like things are gonna be do what they do, and as long as I continue to to move forward and to deal with it in my own way. Um, things are going to quote unquote work out. Death yeah. is a part of life. And I understand that more than most. And I, and I'm fully embracing of that, which means I'm going to hopefully appreciate what I do have. Um, but back to your question, with the exception of Marty, who died in his fifties, who was pretty athletic and seemed to have, you know, he wasn't obese in any way. Didn't seem to have any other like real problems health wise. Um, all of the other people who had passed away, who you mentioned, like, and I don't, and I hate to put it this way, but like, could have like did see it coming in a sense, you know. My my dad's sister, um, God love her, and I loved her to death. Um, just w was obese and didn't leave the house very much, and didn't really do anything to try to to combat that in any real way, as far as I knew her. Um, so she died of of cancer just because she she sort of ignored it and just said okay this is uh, this is my lot in life i guess my brother had alcohol and substance abuse, substance abuse problems and crashed uh, god knows how many cars and the last car he crashed also killed him so these kinds of things where it's just like i it was it was obviously frustrating and heartbreaking and demoralizing in a lot of ways but it was very much like a. I, I remember thinking when my brother passed away, the my immediate emotion was just frustration and anger more than it was sorrow. Eventually, it turned to sorrow, but at first, I like, you know, when I first saw his body, I wanted to say to him, if I could, what the fuck were you thinking? What did you think was going to happen? Yeah. So it wasn't like you know, uh, God snatched 
him from us far too early from leukemia or from uh, something, you know, obviously unforeseen and horrible. I mean, obviously an accident is horrible too, but like, it was very much like a, you, you made this bed like, and it sucks. And you've, and you, you've um, derailed a lot of, uh, a lot of people that are still here that have to mourn you now. Um, it's two or three steps away from like suicide in a sense where it's just like, dude, like, did you not think that this is what was going to happen when you did this? And look what you're doing to your mother, to your brother, to your family, to your friends. Like you could have prevented this. So, so I didn't think in a sense that I myself was unlucky or had like a bad lot in life, but I I definitely had like a, a, an appreciation for what I do have is um, a pretty much straight, uh, path in front of me that I that I lead myself, and that um, I have obviously friends and family who I love dearly and care about who are still here and are and will be here for a very long time, God willing. Um, and uh, that sort of just like further cemented my sort of like just optimistic like, hey, life's gonna do what it does, and I have to just persevere through it, and I'm happy to because I'm with all the things that have gone poorly in certain ways, there are so many, so many, so many more things that are going well. Yeah. So I just have to keep doing that, you know? I remember when you lost your father, Our you came over to our house, and our dad, um, he, he, he basically said, like, I know you lost your father, but, like, I'm here for you. Like, I will be, I will step into that role, you know? And, yes. I, and I, I think that, um, you know, for as much as losses you've had, you've been very well surrounded um in, in your group of friends, in in um in everybody. You know, I think that that you've had a community around you to, to make up for those losses. One hundred percent. And I mean and not to sort of like make you guys blush anymore, but like like nobody more than you guys. The Rosenthal family to me has always been and never more than then is is my family, you know? Yeah. That's and, and it's hundred percent true. The way you guys have always like from from kindergarten on have taken me in as like one of the clan has been has been uh, just unbel- it's you know it's been unbelievable and I can't thank you all enough. Oh, well, the, believe me, the same goes to you and we love you like family. Let's talk about some of the more fun times. What do you think when you hear it's the real no apostrophe no spaces? Man, it's the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> it's so cool. Like just everything that that the that I guess we'll call it the brand, the team, the company, the 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 thing, everything that it's turned into already. And obviously, we've already talked behind closed doors about what could be next and what is is uh, is on the horizon. But like, just it's the coolest fucking thing ever, man. Like the fact that you know, like we were saying from the from the mixtapes that we would make back in middle school and high school to then deciding like, oh, we're going to do this web series and we're going to need some scoring and we're going to need some music and we're going to need some parody songs or some original songs. And some acting, by the way. And some, yeah. and some acting, that's right. Um, <laughs> just like it it, it it opened me up uh, professionally and, and musically in a lot of ways. Like, oh, wow, I'm like, I'm actually scoring. I didn't know... That that's that that's what I was doing when I would be doing that to certain songs that or certain um, videos that we would be working on, and then just the the following that that started to gain, and then of course that parlayed into all of the other stuff that it turned into, and then of course here we are as as this um, wonderful podcast that that uh, everybody's been listening to for years. It's just it's. It's it's such a fucking fun ride to be a part of. It's so dope. Personally, I think that the reason we all work so well together creatively is because we have that 
uh, not only the friendship, which is, I, I think, an easier part of this, but I think we've also worked together. So we've done projects, and I'm talking about like maintenance projects at camp. I'm talking about, you know, Greg, when we had to make some some money, we painted dorm rooms at SUNY Purchase. <laughs> Whether that's yep. you helping us move apartments like twice in a decade and us helping you move like a half dozen times. There's that teamwork that we all learned at Purchase Day Camp and Purchase Community House. There's that shorthand. And I think that extends to what become passion projects. And and I don't know if you saw this uh, a couple days ago was the third anniversary of the Rockefeller show that we did at Highline Ballroom. And, yeah, and, yeah, Bun, yeah. and Bun B commented on our post on Instagram. And he was like, passion projects greater than, greater than, greater than, greater than. As in like, that's what moves you know, people, whether you're the creators or you're the fans. And for us, everything has been uh, driven by the passion of it. If we're in your basement recording songs as high schoolers, if we're in that same studio these days recording new music, if we are, you know, doing sketches and we need you to play a UPS driver, or if we're like, yo, we need you to come up with this music or or whether you call on us to to do something, we're we're all here, and that collaboration is just like second nature. One hundred percent, and I think I mean the word that I was thinking of earlier that you just sort of said was like the shorthand of it is is everything. First of all, from like the day to day sort of operations of it, right? Where it's like you know, for example, you call me and say, "Hey, I need a song that does X," or "I need a backing track that does this." I need a. I remember there was just not too long ago you called me up and said, "Hey, you know the theme from the videos." Or sorry, the theme from the from the podcast. We need a um, an elevator music version of that. <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, got it." Well, my no my favorite thing is actually calling you at the beginning of quarantine and saying, "Hey, so Jeff and I on a recent episode um, sang the Cheers theme song, and uh, <laughs> we need some some yeah. some piano backing. Do you have a keyboard on you? Because you were staying out in Long Island." And yeah. uh, would you be able to accompany this? <laughs> we're not necessarily staying on beat. You know, we were just singing this like from our hearts. Could you help us out? And you were like, no problem. And you sent us back like individual tracks and it <laughs> was incredible. And you played along to it because you've played with with like high schoolers who, That's who might not right. be yes. able to uh, keep um, a pitch or a tempo. That's so. right. And, you know, I think you're absolutely right. You guys did really sing with your heart. That's really true. <laughs> yeah, a lot of I'll emotion. give you that. There was a lot of passion there. Really, yeah. really a lot of passion. Not everybody is this lucky, but the fact that our passion projects are our projects, are our life and our job is the coolest thing in the world. Like back to what I was saying about my perpetual optimism. It's like, how can I how can I be sad at times like this? This is fucking dope. You know what I mean? Why didn't you go to the high school reunion? <laughs> that's That's where you want to go? Yeah. Well, Jeff, like I said, I'm a perpetual optimist, and I like to keep it that way. Yo, uh, Greg, you know, beyond beyond the passion projects that we all work on together, uh, you are and have become a, a real professional in the music business. You've been all over the world touring with John Bon Jovi. You've played gigs in New York City for well over a decade, I think, um, mm-hmm. you know, becoming a staple at The Bitter End and later at Rockwood Music Hall and playing every event chetty red you know places you can't even like you know <laughs> recall yeah right. uh around around new york city and beyond um how have you approached being a a 
a big part of that music community that is very specific to downtown New York. From day one, it was actually like a real, it's a real honor to be anywhere near that sort of lineage of like what the, the West Village once was, you know? I remember when I first got a call um, to, to play The Bitter End, I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, that's the place that Stevie Wonder played and Curtis Mayfield did a live record there and, and you know, all this other like incredible stuff happened at this place. So I remember when I first started playing there, that was like my first quote unquote residency with my original band at the time. We played for a couple of years every month at the same place that my idol, my single, my singular idol, Stevie Wonder, performed at, you know, 30 years before. Also and Lady Gaga. <laughs> oh, of course. Of course. How could I forget? Thank Sorry, you, Stephanie Germanata. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, so that that has never been lost on me. That has always been like a... In, I mean, of course, the West Village has changed in, in from era to era and things are different than they were then. But like still in the bricks of that place, that's, you know, the picture that you see of Donny Hathaway live at, you know, Donny Hathaway live was recorded mostly there. Yeah. And the same bricks that I am standing in front of performing is the same bricks that you see the picture of him performing in front of. So it's, it's kind of incredible. But when you get down to the, to the day to day of it, so I would perform as a, as a band leader and a lead singer, but also I would perform as a sideman, as a guitar player or piano player or whatever for different artists from the day to day of it. It's, it's, it's a really special community. And similarly to like us having a, a special community when we were growing up, whether it be at, at elementary school, middle school, high school, the, the the camp and the community house and that sort of stuff, there was a special community that was developing around the time that I started being a sideman in New York. And it was not one of like, um, get out of my way, I'm trying to make it to the big tours or whatever it was. It was very much like a, hey, we're all just trying to make a living here and let's see if we can help each other and somehow make good music at the same time. So being around people who like really cared first and foremost about the music and about the artists that we were working with was everything to me because like it, 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 there, there's so many lessons that I learned in my 20s doing that not the not the smallest of which is just like, just be prepared. Just show up and know your shit. Because I can't tell you how many times that isn't the case and how many times you never see those people again. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So so there there's a lot there's a lot that like I learned in the West Village and the Lower East Side in New York that has even though I don't play there nearly as much as I used to, um it's like all the lessons and all the people that I work with, I still work with on a regular basis and all the lessons I still use every single day um, working, whether it be in the studio or on with these other artists that I work with and on tours and things like that. It's, it, it was, it was the perfect way to like really have a, have a, have my sort of a professional adolescence, you know, in my twenties. It was it was unbelievable. Greg, having played so many venues here in New York City, what are some of your favorite performances that you've been a part of? Whether you know, big, small, well attended, sparsely attended, whatever. And then well, follow that up with what are your least favorite <laughs> venues, <laughs> least favorite performances? <laughs> okay, well, first, yeah, we'll start with the good. We'll start with the good. My favorite place to play is Rockwood Music Hall. What up, Rockwood Music Hall? They, from day one, have staffed the place with um, um, sound guys and bartenders and um, staff who care. Like it, And you would think, like, you got into music to be a... Like, say you wanted to be a front-of-house sound guy. You wanted to be the mixer for the audience. Like, you should have a passion for it, right? And you should try to be good at it all the time. 
And you'd be very surprised to learn, or maybe you wouldn't be surprised to learn, that most of these guys don't give a fuck. Right. Whether this shit sound good, sounds good or not, I can't tell you how many gigs I've played, and this is me getting the pessimism side, <laughs> but I can't tell you how many gigs I've played where within the second song, the guy's out smoking a cigarette. Like outside of the venue, not even listening. So like we'll be on stage and saying, like, hey man, can I get some more vocals <laughs> in my monitor? And then somebody in the crowd will be like, he's outside. <laughs> be like, like, what? How is he outside? We're 10 minutes into the show. What in the <laughs> fuck is happening? So th- that is, like I said, something that never has happened at Rockwood. And that, believe it or not, has already put it at number one <laughs> on my list. Yeah. Um, no, but Rockwood ha- has beco- had become like sort of the bullseye as far as where all of my friends who I got to know in my 20s found their home in our late 20s and 30s as like, if I'm going to present new music to an audience that really wants to listen to and with a sound um, system that's actually really good and a venue that's actually going to care about us and, and our comfortability in throughout the night, um, that's where we all want to be. So whenever an artist would call me and said, hey, um, I'm playing a gig, wants you to play with me, it's at Rockwood. I'm like, I can breathe a sigh of relief, you know, in a sense, before the gig even starts, which is obviously kind of how you want to be. Um, my favorite nights there are obviously packed houses at, you know, stage two, whether it be for for my band or for um, the this guy Robbie Gill, who I work with for the last 10 years, or this guy Martin Rivas, who I've worked with equally as long. And are a couple other artists that I love to work with, but some of my favorite memories are when we would, when my friends and I would play the super late slot, like the one a.m., two a.m. slot at the smaller room, stage one at Rockwood, and we played a five, ten people who were still there from earlier shows, because those are the times when we just sort of like to let loose and just sort of pick a handful of songs that we all love and just kind of just jam on them for a little while. It's not like a, it's it's unrehearsed, but not. Um, not uncentered and not unfocused, so it doesn't turn into like the Grateful Dead or the or Fish or something <laughs> like that. It's still it's still pretty focused. We're trying to play songs faithfully, but like it is really like a it's a loose. no pressure and yeah. a lot of fun situation. Yeah. yeah. Right before we got on the the call today, you were telling us about how you've had a hundred gigs that have been canceled, and so what is the what is the plan like moving forward? Well, it's funny. I've over the last couple of years, I mean, I'm going to backtrack a little bit, but over the last couple of years, I've been trying my best to sort of pivot um, career wise a little bit. Um, so I've, I've, like I said, I spent my 20s and my early 30s strictly, almost strictly as a, as like a live musician, whether it be touring or backing up other artists. And I would use producing and songwriting as sort of just like a, not necessarily like a fun side thing, but something that I was like always passionate about and always wanted to get more into. And, you know, I would produce artists that I was already performing with or artists that I was friends with in the music scene. And I would sometimes co-write with them. And rarely I would get in a place to like pitch for, a TV show or for a commercial or for a trailer or for something like that. And I would start to produce music for that. But I was, as I listened back to old, those early, you know, uh, submissions, I was terrible at it at the time. Anyway. Um, so over the last couple of years, I've made a really conscious effort to try to pivot into more into the producing world with more into the scoring world, more into the trailer music world and commercials and TV shows and things like that. So when this coronavirus thing really started to to take shape, take hold. It was March. My last gig that I had was March 13th, I think it was. I was down in Atlanta or uh, Athens, Georgia, playing a gig. 
And two days later, I was out at this house in Long Island, um, holed up with my girlfriend, just trying to like figure out what life was going to be like. And at the time we thought, oh, this will last a week. This will be two weeks. And we were staying at a friend of hers's place. And he graciously let us just said, he says, listen, there's no, you can stay there as long as you want. I'm in France, so I'm chilling. You can <laughs> do what you want. And we were like, oh, great. This is a beautiful house. We're near the beach. Come on. How could it be worse? So I started to say, okay, how, and I've always been like a, how can I make the best of whatever this is? of whatever situation I'm in, how can I use this to, to some sort of advantage? How can I come out of this with something? And at early on in this quarantine, what became this long extended quarantine, I said like, okay, well, I'm going to do something with this. I'm going to like really work on um, uh, producing or I'm going to really work on trailer music. I'm going to really work on scoring music. And one thing that I've, as you guys know, and I guess your listeners are about to find out, I am obsessed with movies. I've <laughs> always been a movie obsessed guy like just put on a marathon of any um director or any actor and i'm and i'm in i want to know everything about everything that goes on there and i can remember these stories and i can remember quotes i can remember the score i can remember everything about all these crazy movies anyway so i've always had a passion for that and i've always been really interested in how that world works and i always wanted to get into scoring um and when I got out of college or when I was in college, scoring was still in like a, I guess, more a quote unquote, like traditional sort of place. Like mm -hmm. you couldn't really do a major score without an orchestra or a choir or a giant percussion section or, you know, a big soundstage, for example. But you, in the years that have passed, you, um, scoring has updated with the times and you have guys like... Um, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross and Johan Johansson and all these different people who have done like these much smaller scores that can you can literally do with a laptop from anywhere. And you can create this really wonderful, high quality, um, mood enhancing, great sound um, of, of music. And over the last few years, as I've been trying to get into that more and more, I... I've just been just been busy. Like, thankfully, of course, I've been just busy with gigs and with with touring and with life and trying to, you know, have, have time with friends and things like that. So I haven't been able to like really get a handle on the scoring thing or get my get my foot in that door. And of course, when I woke up like day six or seven of quarantine after I waited on hold with the you know the New York Department of Labor or whatever the hell trying to get some unemployment money going, yeah, I just said, you know what, I'm going to use this time. I'm going to make a scoring reel. I'm going to make a make a reel to show what I can possibly do as a scorer. And I got on a phone with a couple of people who are in that world a little bit and I got some advice and I got some thoughts and I just said, "Okay, I'm going to pull I'm going to start pulling scenes from the internet of just like movie scenes that I like that I think I have a an angle on or I think I can do something different than what the scorer already did. I think I can make something of this." So, I spent the next couple of weeks just building a, what what we call a rescoring reel, which is obviously not something like it didn't end up in the movie, but it's like what I would have done with that film, you know? So I made this like 11 or 12 minute scoring reel and I passed it around to a couple of people that I know. And of course, around that same time, all of music and movie and TV industry all also closed. Yeah. So the scoring reel has sort of been sitting there, but I actually, I've made a couple of inroads, but to, this is the very long version of answering your question. Like I'm just trying to like, I'm trying to spend less time on the road, less time on on uh, on stage, and more time in the studio. And whatever shape that takes is kind of is kind of like just it's uh, Christmas for me. Yeah, just because 
uh, and even before this virus hit, it was very much like a, I I enjoy the road, I enjoy that thing, but I know that 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 has a ceiling, and I don't want to wake up at 60 years old and like in a hotel room in a random town that like, Oh, my family's back home and I'm missing them and shit. Like if I can do this at home and I think I'm good at, it and I think I can give the world something musically, then this is, this is the best place for me. Yeah. I think that, uh, and we were, uh, so happy to see you, uh, for the first time in like six months at, uh, Dan and Jeff's birthday dinner, which was just the four of us as, uh, at, as a, a end of the day special after cruising around the city and seeing all these friends that we hadn't seen in so long. Um, yeah. And, and we got into this discussion and I'll, I'll say to everyone here who's listening, just as I said to you, the skills translate, the, the talent is there. It's a matter of, you know, what is the new way to present it? You know, it's not going to be on a stage, not for a long time. It's not going right. to be, uh, you know, working necessarily one-on-one uh, in the, in the near you know, future, but I think it's there's a there's a way out there. Whether it's like podcasters who are interested in music, whether it's artists who are looking for fire beats, if it's a chance to create sound beds for animation or or whatever we haven't even like discussed or thought of uh, b- beyond the work that we're all going to do together. I think there is a chance for you to write a new chapter with people that you just meet on the internet and people who, uh, you know, maybe doing things that you haven't even considered at this point. 100%. And, and that's, <clears throat> that's sort of like the most exciting part of this is because like everything else that has happened over the last 20 or 30 years or hundreds, you know, 2000 years, like it's the idea that no one's thought of yet that, that, that does something, you know what I mean? That leads to something new, obviously. Right. So whether, you or I or Jeff or Dan or or somebody we haven't met yet comes up with that idea, like just and it, it, it's going to be an exciting thing. It's it's not going to look like it does, and it's not going to look like it did, but it's going to be cool. Whatever it is, we're going to adapt and we're going to find a way to to make something dope with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, okay. So let's let's do a little bit of like sliding doors. Um, Ooh. Yeah. What is one thing? that was offered to you that if you had taken the opportunity you would be in a completely different place like different um a different life led you know like my my first thought is what if you had followed uh an ex-girlfriend to long island Island and taken her up on her (laughs) offer to be a piano Salesman. salesman yeah um, well, I think my perpetual optimism would be in question <laughs> if that were to happen. <laughs> well, I will say we were, we were what were in our early twenties at the time and no shots at her. She's a wonderful woman. And, uh, the next guy she dated, she married and they have two kids apparently on Facebook as I see. So good for them. Good for her. Did you buy a um, piano from him? Uh, I have not bought a single piano from him. Um, he, he may or may not be the employee of the month at uh, Steinway, you know, Route 27. I don't really know. Anyway, um, so so that that's a, that's a that's a good call, Jeff. That's a good one. But I, probably the one that I always come back to is like my decision to leave Hartford. So when I when I went into my professor's offices, you know, in my second semester at Hartford. Um, and I told him, listen, I'm going to transfer to purchase. I have X, Y, and Z reason. And here's my situation. Here's what's happening. One of my professors said, listen, I 
think you're doing really great work here. This was my my uh, my music producing techno, uh, my my production professor. He said, listen, you're doing really great work here. You have a work study situation where you're um, recording different shows on campus and you're logging them into the system. You're getting really good at Pro Tools. You're picking up on all the things really quickly. I am prepared and was prepared up until this moment to, uh, I was going to offer you a job here over the summer in the studio. Wow. And it would be obviously a ton of hands-on experience and you and I would be working hand in hand with artists that I would bring in or uh, faculty members who are working on records or local artists in the community, things like that. You could really get a leg up into engineering and producing on some really great state-of-the-art, full-on you know, recording studio stuff and you'd have access to this whole building for anything you want. So I remember walking out of the office Thinking to me, and he says, listen, you don't have to tell me now. Just think about it for a couple of days. I know that you sort of have your mind made up, but think about it and let me know. So I remember th- that moment of like, okay, that's a that's a huge like fork in the road for me. If I had stayed there, my life w- would be... Completely different. Yes. There would be no uh, um, similarities to what it is right now. I think that I wouldn't have spent as much time working on my piano and my guitar skills i probably wouldn't be writing nearly as much i don't think i'd be producing as much i would probably honestly be running a studio somewhere yeah just like as like the head engineer slash studio manager slash you know whatever that may be that's probably what my role would be and i would probably be relatively happy but it i don't know it wouldn't be as cool as what i think (laughs) as how i feel now yeah and also the same thing with if you had ended up in boston going to the berkeley school where even though it wouldn't have worked out for for financial reasons but like you you could have gone to berkeley and been like a real jazz technical musician in a way that you you did not end up being 100% absolutely and again the the perpetual optimism comes into question there because we know what the world of jazz is like uh, nowadays there's yeah. a lot of great musicians who aren't making a lot of money greg when i look back at you know, your end of high school, college days. And I think about like, what did Greg Mayo listen to? I think about Stevie Wonder. I think about Michael Jackson. I think about Prince and Hall and Oates. These are all the cool things that he was listening to. And Beatles and, <laughs> yeah, and no. Thank Beach you, Eric, Boys, Jeff, yeah, and, you can leave. and Aerosmith and, and Fish and Jay-Z Unplugged oh, and, no, now, yeah, now and Green some... Day and, and Real Big Fish <laughs> and Tribe <laughs> Called Quest. But my real question is, Greg, mm-hmm. yeah. When we would call you out for listening to, let's say, and I don't remember if it was the Backstreet Boys or or, or InSync, and you would be like, "No, man, I'm I'm studying the production." I have to ask you now, were you really? <laughs> Max Martin, guys, get let's get hip to Max Martin. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea who the fuck that guy was at the time, but it doesn't matter. Right. I will say, I. Looking back, I'll say like I was just a I was a nerd for pop melodies, straight honestly, and I would listen to the music because I enjoyed it. Honestly, I listened to it was the InSync record where Justin really started to take hold. Right, it was where he really started to like take the leadership into that group. So like, yeah, um, was it Celeb Dirty Pop? Celebrity was pop. I forgot the name of the record, but Dirty Pop was the first yeah, track on yeah, the yeah. record. The record was a Celebrity. Yeah, yeah, and I remember thinking like. Wow, this, especially this particular song, I was like, oh my God, this is actually really cool. This is pop music? Oh, fuck yeah. So I remember it was, I mean, and I still use some of what I learned um, 
listening to those productions at the time. But like, honestly, if I, if I'm being real with myself, looking at myself in the mirror, I would have to say like, this was just fun music to listen to, man. Yeah, I feel like, I don't, <laughs> I, I feel like the more embarrassing thing that like was not mentioned is that you listened to Avril Lavigne. I sure did. Yeah. 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 Not so great. There was a studio and I remember this, like this, this, I, I remember it in it, like very well. Now I worked at, I, w- I was interning at a studio in Bronxville called The Loft, which is still um, a living, breathing, working studio, which Shouts is amazing. Shouts to the Hamburgers. The Hamburgers. That's right. Shouts to the Hamburgers. Yeah. Um, they, uh, and I remember one of the rooms was rented 24-7 by this songwriting duo who had done some work with NSYNC and Backstreet Boys and Britney Spears and a couple of the artists of that time. And I remember one time sitting in the control room after like a songwriting session that I had with somebody. And I was just like sitting in the corner on the couch, just kind of taking in the vibe. And Skater Boy, the song, came on like MTV or came on one of like the music channels on like the, you know, the higher up channels on a cable box or whatever. And Skater Boy came on and one of them had heard the song before and the other had not. And I remember them listening to the song and my my like late teenage angst of sort of like, man, this is stupid, came on in my head, right? Of kind of like, oh, I'm programmed to not like this. This is like, you know, a pop girl trying to do punk and it's really bullshit and it's not real and she's just like putting on this face. You know what I mean? And I remember super well that these guys had no... Um, had none of that sort of ego or none of that compunction or none of that like thing to like have a knee-jerk reaction to it. They took in the song as they were listening and the one guy was like, oh yeah, you should listen to this. And the other guy just sat there and listened to it and he goes, yeah, this is a pretty fucking great song. This is a great composition. This is really good. I remember thinking to myself like, oh my God, these guys that I like really respect and are like at the top of their game writing like number one hits for all these big artists, like they actually really like the song. Maybe there's something to this. Maybe so there's you're something more here. So you that you did not respect me and I was not at the top of my game? Um, I'm saying your game, you may have been at the top of your game, <laughs> but that game may not have been the same game these guys were playing. How about that? <laughs> Greg, are you more of a Timberland guy or a Neptunes guy? Ooh. Oh wait! I'm oh, I'm gonna shit. guess. I'm gonna guess that you're gonna say Neptune's. I was gonna guess Timberland. Well, guys, <laughs> I'm a. Wow, you're an enigma. <laughs> I'm a I'm a Timberland guy. Yeah. I'll say this. It's like, but I swear to God, it's like a 100 to a 99. Yeah. Like they are, and and I appreciate them for completely opposite reasons. Honestly, like Timberland has. Obviously, I mean, I'm not telling anybody who's listening anything they don't already know, but he's been the guy for fucking 25 years, 30 years or whatever it's been. So good God, how he's adapted with the time, but somehow kept a extremely personable, personal and one of a kind sound throughout that whole thing is just truly breathtaking. The fact like it's it's unbelievable that like from from the 90s to now you listen to a Timberland track it comes on and you know instantly it's a Timberland track and instantly it is danceable like no other track that exists is it's fucking unbelievable yeah his his um, idea of rhythm is just like alien it's it's exactly one exactly. of one he's always 20 years ahead of the game where the neptunes and of course it's like unbelievably complex the way that he will create a, like a synth sound out of like 10 different layers and then create a what sounds like a sample of this weird like whistle or something like that out of four different sounds and then combine them he's like truly a soundscape guy but also an eminent beat guy yeah it's amazing whereas the neptunes 
what's amazing about their stuff and obviously what Pharrell has continued to do is like simplicity is king, right? It's like, I'm going to literally put one mic in a room. I'm going to sit down at the drums myself and sloppily play a beat. And then I'm going to create a groove around that with like three instruments, maybe. And they're going to be a lot of times live sounding stuff combined with some like sample based stuff. And it is going to fit in a weird way like nothing else does. So it's it's just like fascinating. Like you listen to like Senorita, for example, off of the first generation Justin Timberlake record is one that comes to mind where it's like, this is sloppy as hell. But for some reason, it fucking goes so it's hard perfect. and it's yeah. so dope. Yeah. yeah. But it's like, it's a live kick drum, which is not something you hear in pop music. It's a live snare drum. It's live horns. It's a real Rhodes, like a key, uh, as a yeah. keyboard. Yeah. So it's like, these are all like real instruments. And somehow this is contemporary alongside all of this stuff that is so synthetic that it feels like it shouldn't fit. But it's so good that it's not only fits, but it's a lot of times better than everything that's happening. So, like I said, I like them for completely opposite reasons. It's fucking so cool. And right. I wish yeah. for and I will say this, talking like the Justin Timberlake record, the first one is sort of like half and half the two of them produced separately, right? Yeah. I wish every other Justin Timberlake record continued with that theme. Yeah. That would have been so dope. It would have been so fucking cool. Anyway, that's I'll leave it there. <laughs> Greg, I think I know the answer to this because I know what it's like when the three of us are in a room and we're creating together. Um, but but are you, in, in your eyes, still the same person, the same kid that you were when we were making rap mixtapes in your mom's basement all those years ago? 1,000% yes. I have... I, I like to think I'm a little better at it than I was then, <laughs> but... I am still exactly the same person. Your hit a little bit harder. Your, uh, yeah. Exactly, exactly. But my approach is uh, is 100% the same. Like I said, just like I just want to impress the guy in the room. I want to like make Eric feel this and I want Jeff to feel this. Like that's really honestly where it starts and yeah. where it ends. You know, yeah. if I did that, then I did my job and it's so fucking cool when I, when I actually do, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, I would be remiss to end this podcast before asking for a good Greg Mayo car story. <laughs> oh, wow. There's so many. Oh, man. Well, yeah, Jeff, take your pick. Dealer's choice. What what story would you like to hear? <laughs> there could, hold on. There, there could be, obviously, when you met up with your brother. There, yep. there could um, be there could be when when you when you were coming home from Hartford right to go to Farrah's yeah. uh, like sanctioned party I, I believe yep. at, at, at your mom's place at my um, house that's right, right yeah uh, I there's uh man there's there's countless tickets um as 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 yeah. we mentioned uh there's, there's a there, time my car was stolen oh yeah please tell that one tell that one that's the uh, one that's the one okay <laughs> okay so. Man, I'm that, living in a. Oh. Sorry, go ahead. Actually, wait, 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 real quick, real quick. There's one. There's one fantastic car story that you told on the open mic episode that you guys have to listen. So go search for uh, open mic night. It's the real Greg. Wait, we tell that story. That is one of that is Greg. Greg was asked to tell a five minute story. It ended up being a half hour story. And well, you told is, the story, on and that. it is worth every single second. Part of that was Greg's drive back from the city to to Westchester. <laughs> but but anyway, yes, Greg's car got stolen. Take it away. Okay, so I'm living in Astoria, Queens, and uh, uh, there's like street parking outside of the apartments everywhere you are in Astoria, and you can usually park 
you can find spots kind of wherever you need to, as long as you can move them once or twice a week. Anyway, so I'm, I'm living in Queens. I'm working at a music school up in Westchester called Lagonde Music. Shouts to Lagonde Music. Shouts to um, Lagonde. Yeah, what's up, Lagonde? So <laughs> I have this student band who's playing a gig at Rye Playland yeah. Memorial Day weekend. <laughs> and... um. So I park my car. I find a spot literally right outside the front of my apartment. And I'm like, oh, this is great. I'm going to wake up in the morning. I'm going to get in the car. I'm going to go to Rye Playland and play with my students. And this is going to be a great day. It's going to be awesome. Wake up the next morning, walk out to my car, and it's just gone. It's not there. And I say to myself, like, okay, did I actually park? where? Because anybody who was ever parked in the city says, like, you park in a different spot every night. You think, oh, was that last night or was that tonight? <laughs> right. What the hell did I do? So I like look up and down the block and I have one of those like buzzers where I can hit the button and it will make my car go. So I like walk up the block 100 yards and I hit the button. I don't see anything. I walk back down the block. Don't see anything. I walk one, like I walk a, a radius. I walk like a circle of a block, like one, one square block and I don't see it. So I call the local police and I say, hey guys, did you happen to tow a car? <laughs> Within the last 12 hours in the neighborhood, and they transfer me to the impound, and they say, well, no, no car has shown up, but it, it could take up to, you know, 12, 24 hours for it to show up here, so call back in a little while, and I was like, okay, and then, of course, I asked my super, I was like, hey, did you move my car for some reason? I don't think I was parked in front of the lot, you know, in front of the driveway. He goes, no, I would have told you if I did. Okay, so then, of course, the a couple cops come by, and they say, hey, um, give me your car keys. We're going to drive around the block and see. And I was like, well, I just did that, but sure, go ahead. So they drive around the block. They drive for like five, 10 minutes and they hit the clicker a couple times and, and obviously they don't find the car. And they say, okay, well, we're going to fill out all the paperwork. We're going to see if, you know, see what happens to your car. So luckily my girlfriend at the time had her car in Queens. So I was able to get into her car and drive up to the gig and then play the, the show. And I don't hear anything from the impound. I try them again. The car is not there. And I'm like, what the fuck? Did somebody steal my car? Like, this doesn't happen. My car got stolen? This is so bizarre. Like, I don't know. I feel like that's something that happens to other people. So I, it's two days later. It's um, Monday of Memorial Day. And it actually happens to be um, my anniversary with that girl who I was using her car. And she was very nice enough to let me use her car that whole freaking weekend. Um... <laughs> Anyway, so I'm up at my mom's house, and of course, in the car, by the way, that got stolen was like this, my, one of my guitar amps and all my pedals, yeah. my guitar pedals, my FX pedals. The amp is from like 1968. It's a priceless heirloom. It's this whole thing. I'm like freaking out. So I'm up at my mom's house, and I'm dropping some gear off at the studio, and she says, oh, there's a, there's a call on the answering machine for you. You should go check it out. So I'm like, okay, great. Who calls me at mom's house? Nobody has this number anymore, <laughs> but whatever. So I listen to the voicemail, and it says... Uh, hello, Mr. Mayo. This is um, this is Chief Johnson, or whatever the heck his name is. <laughs> this is Chief Johnson at the uh, at the firehouse, Sunnyside, Queens. Um, we have your car. Uh, give me a call back and let me know uh, when you're gonna come and get come come pick up your car. I'm like, what the fuck? Just call me back in December. I'm like, what the hell? Oh my god! So I immediately get on the phone and I call the number, and I said, hi, can I speak with Chief Johnson, please? They say, yeah. Hold on a second. I'm like, hey, Chief. Um, did you just tell, you left a message on this phone number, you have my car. And he goes, yeah, yeah, when are you going to fucking come and get your car? <laughs> and I'm like, wait, 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 you have my car? And he goes, yeah, it's right here. You're going to come and get it or what? You, It's disrupting shit around here. I'm like, wait, I, I'm like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Can you, can you tell me what the license plate number is on the car? And then he reads it down and I'm like, 
holy shit, that's my car. How the fuck do you have my car? And he goes, what the hell? You left it here. We had to move it. And I was like, wait, wait, wait. How did you move my car? And he goes, the keys were in it. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking? This is getting weirder and weirder by the second. And then I asked him again, read the license plate to me again. Make sure. And he goes, yeah, the keys were in it. It's this car. It's your car. What the hell? You're going to come get it. And I said, well, wait, wait, wait. The keys are in. I'm literally speaking to him from my mom's living room. I have the keys in my hand. And I said, guy, there's no possible way that you have the keys to my car. I'm holding on to them. And the spare set is in the drawer in the other room here in my house. What the fuck are you talking about? And he says, well, I don't know what to tell you. There were keys in the car. We, it started the car and then we moved it up the block. And I said, well, uh, okay. Um, and he goes, yeah, it was parked in front of the firehouse. Like if we had a call, we were going to run over your car to lead, to go fight this fire. What the fuck, dude? And I'm like, okay, well, just so you know, my car, I, I registered it stolen like three days ago. So I don't know how the fuck it ended up there, but I'll be there in an hour. And he goes, okay, yeah, I might not be here, but I'll leave the keys, you know, with the guy at the front. I was like, okay, great. Thanks. I hang up the phone. I'm like, mom, they found my car. It's there. I got to go. I'm going to go. So I get in the, I get in my girlfriend's car at the time and I drive down to this place. Of course, as I'm on my way down there, I call her and say, hey, listen, I know we were supposed to have an anniversary dinner tonight, but my car, they found my car. I got to go get it. And she was less than enthused, but that's fine. Um, so finally get down to the thing. The chief has left, but like the, the night watch guy or whatever the hell is there. And he says, okay, so here's, here's your keys. And inside the key ring, there's this folded up, this like crumpled up piece of paper that he like, that is put into the key ring. And of course the key is a Honda key (laughs) and it's the only key on the chain, of course. And of course my keys have like a bunch of keys on it. You know, it's my, my car key, my house key, my studio key, the whole thing. So I'm like, where the fuck did this key come from? What in the hell is happening? And of course, I uncrumple the piece of paper that was crumpled in there, and it's a fucking parking ticket. So, of course, that means that a couple of cops had walked up to the firehouse and said, hey, whose car is this? No, we're not going to bother looking up whether the car is stolen and left in front of a fucking firehouse. We're just going to write a ticket and then keep going. So let's, you know, let's leave that aside. So, of course, he says, oh, here's your keys. Um, you know, I parked it down. The, we parked it down the block. And I was like, okay, great. Thanks. So, of course, I walk over to my car. And lo and behold, these, these random key opens the door and can start the car. So I'm like, oh, well, shit, okay. And I call the police officers, or I call the, the, the precinct. And I say, hey, a couple days ago, my car was considered stolen. I just found it in front of the firehouse. So thanks. Um, so thanks for nothing, but you can, you know, unstart looking for the, you can stop looking for the car if you were ever looking for the car. Um, so they're like, listen, okay, we're going to send somebody over right away just to put the file closed or whatever. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm here. I have a fucking date I have to get to, but that's fine. Whatever. Take your time assholes so they finally they finally pull up to the car yeah exactly yeah right we don't got no stinking leads um anyway so they pull up to me and they say oh great cool you found the car is everything intact and i was like well believe it or not my amp and my pedals are still there they were in the trunk just as i left them the only thing that was missing was like twenty dollars and quarters (laughs) that i would pay at the meters and stuff of course so whoever it was took my car for a fucking joyride. All of like three miles, literally were like three miles from my apartment. And they like, I guess, drove it all night and then left it in front of this firehouse one morning. I guess they got spooked or who knows what. Anyway, so the cops say, listen, okay, well, great. Um, 
I guess we'll we'll go through the paperwork and we'll take this car off of our you know looking for list or whatever the hell. And I said, okay, great, thanks. Um, I'm just gonna drive this home then, and I'll have my girlfriend <laughs> meet me here and she can take the other car. They're like, no, you can't drive it yet. <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? They're like, no, no, no. It's the the paperwork. It's got to go through. It's gonna be another like 12 hours, 24 hours before you know before we can actually like lift the the searching for thing on it. I was like. The fuck are you talking about? <laughs> it's right here. You didn't find it in three days. Just parked somewhere in front of a firehouse. Oh. What the hell is going on here? I need to use the car. And they're like, "Okay, listen. Are you gonna drive the speed limit?" And I was like, "Yeah." He's like, "Are you gonna run any red lights?" And I was like, uh, "No." And they're like, "Okay. Well, as long as you obey all the traffic laws, there's no reason for anybody to pull you over and then you know um, uh, arrest you for stealing your own car." I was like, "Okay, great." Go fuck yourselves. I don't know what the fuck you do. What do you actually do? So, of course, I get in the car and I drive it home. And all I am is out $20 in quarters. I get my own car back. And the rest, as they say, is history. Listen, man, I'm, I'm happy that all you lost were your quarters. I'm so happy that you found your pedal board. And I'm most happy that that amp was still sitting in the back. Because as we all know, he who has the PA has the power. <laughs> Greg, yeah. <laughs> we love you. You're the best. Anybody who is looking to collaborate, do some work, can find you at gregmayo.net. Greg, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay creative. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, fellas. It's an honor and a pleasure. Love you guys. All right, take care. Love you. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this new episode of Waste Time with It's The Real. Jeff, people want to find out more about us. I'm Eric with the curly hair. You are Jeff with the glasses. Together, we are It's The Real. No apostrophe, no space. People want to find out more about this podcast. It's called The Waste of Time with It's The Real. Jeff, people want to find out more about what's going on with us. Where can they Go! You can always go to itstherreal.com, I-T-S-T-H-E-R-E-A-L.com. If you're wondering how to spell our name, it's in the name of the podcast. Yes. Waste time with It's The Real, itstherreal.com. Uh, we are also on Patreon, patreon.com slash itstherreal. Everybody knows what a Patreon is by this point. Yes. Um, I also think you can find us at twitter.com slash itstherreal. You can also find us on Instagram at itstherreal. YouTube.com slash It's The Real. Jeff, now is the time of the podcast where we love to shout people out. Who would you like to shout out today? I want to shout out my entire high school <laughs> baseball team. I want to shout out all the Harrison Huskies. I wasn't on the team. Shout out to Coach Belmont. Shout out to Coach Belmont, who allegedly <laughs> choked a kid in my senior year class. I want to shout out Pete Kolash. Yeah. I want to shout out Rudy Arcara. There you go. I want to shout out... Uh, I don't even know who else is on the team, but shout out to all of them. Jeff, I would like to shout out the entire roster of the Manhattan Project. I want to shout out the entire roster. The entire roster. I want to shout out the original bassist, Rich Lyman. I want to shout out the next bassist, Gabe McMahon. I want to shout out the uh, most long-lasting bassist, Shinsuke Ikeda. I want to shout out on guitar, Bob Blake. I want to shout out the drummer, the original drummer. Oh. Angelo Caputo. I want to shout out myself. I played one gig with Bob Blake and the Miracles. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, uh, I also played a gig with Bob Blake and the Miracles. Same gig. As Coach Belmont once said, mm-hmm. that is a shitty way to go out. Yeah. As always, guys, not for real, for real. Sure, sure. See you guys next week. Bye. Bye.